0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Good morning. Very good morning to you. For any of you I've not met. I'm Rich. Uh, I'm one of the leaders of the church here. And um, it's going to be a great morning. I really, really uh, feel like God's been speaking to me as I've been preparing this. And uh, I'm excited to share what um, is on my heart and what's in... um, Mark 11. So we're in this series on Mark, and today I've called Have Faith in God, Even for the Impossible. And my subtitle is Figs, Frauds, and Fiery Faith. And you'll see why. There's some figs, there's some frauds, and there's some fiery faith in Mark 11. So um, I'm I'm a big football fan. I was just chatting to Matt earlier on about the Man United-Liverpool game yesterday. And um, I follow football a lot, and uh, I don't know whether you do as well, you know, there's the classic kind of commentary on the radio, you can watch it on the TV, Um, but the way I often follow a match, especially uh, I notice when it's a really action-packed match, is I'll be on the minute-by-minute, do you know what I mean? So like somebody is literally sitting there in an office somewhere, watching the match, typing out so that I can see it on an app, or I can see it on a website, every single thing that happens in the match, and if it's a good match... That person's fingers are going numb. I mean, the keyboard is melting their typing so fast. So there's a golden and then an own goal and a yellow card, a red card, a foul, a corner, a shot. And they are just trying to keep up minute to minute as to everything that's happening. Um, I've found so far as we've been going through the book of Mark, it's a little bit like that. Every single chapter, there's just like minute by minute so much going on. Mark, uh, in typing out all this story, must have had his fingers absolutely numb. Uh, It is crazy. And this chapter, Mark 11, is that same sort of uh, short, sharp, punchy affair where there's loads happening. And uh, I really want to focus still on this idea of faith and prayer, which we're going to get to. Um, But I want to start off by kind of going through this figs, frauds, and fiery faith, going through, if you like, the minute by minute of Mark 11. So we're going to start with that kind of let's go and see what happens to set a bit of context. But then we are going to pause and we're going to spend a bit of time looking at faith. So, this idea of when you pray, do you have faith? And what to expect from God when you pray? And how can we grow and develop in that? Not just as individuals, as Christians, but as a church. How can we grow in our faith? I'd like to apply this teaching about faith to um, us as we go through it. And because it's Mother's Day, I am particularly, in preparing this week and thinking about Mother's Day, I'm going to particularly bias some of our time of application to mums. Uh, so, as we get to it and apply it, there will be something for everyone, but I'm going to bias it a little bit towards if you're a mum, this is what it means for you as well. And then at the end, I'm going to read out the passage and uh, we'll glue it all together. I hope that's all right. Let's start with a minute by minute what is happening in Mark 11. So, hundreds of years before Mark 11, there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about Jesus. So, more than 300 prophecies. Um, I don't know if you knew, 25% or so of the Bible, when it was written, was prophetic at its time. So, there's loads and loads of prophetic teaching about Jesus. And Mark 11 starts with Jesus making a bit of a scene and something kicking off that relates to a specific prophecy about the coming Messiah. He rides into Jerusalem and he's on a mission. Jesus rides full of purpose and resolve and meaning. I read a quote this week, no one in history has ever lived with such a sense of meaning and of destiny as Jesus. That's the Jesus that we follow. He knows as he's coming into Jerusalem, this is the week he's going to die, this is the week he's going to change the world. He knows much more than everybody else who's around that the world's about to change. He's got this real purpose, but he rides in Specifically in line into Jerusalem, this kind of spiritual and political capital of the area, he rides in, in line with a specific prophecy from Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9 says that the Messiah will come into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, um, like a, a small horse. And so what you've got here is a picture from Zechariah that Jesus is kind of actually bringing to life of the power of Jesus and the humility of Jesus. So he's already proven by his life and ministry so far, he's able to do miraculous, amazing things. But he's on this horse that's more suitable for a kid or a hobbit. You know, it's like, it's this weird mix of like power and meekness and humility. It's amazing. And Jesus straight away in chapter 11 is coming into Jerusalem on this donkey and, and it's crazy. And people respond to Jesus as a king then. So there would have been people around who understood that prophecy, and they're laying down uh, palm branches and putting their clothes down the floor, shouting out, Hosanna, uh, God you save, or Jesus save us. So the minute-by-minute guy following the match report so far has got so much to type already. It's like, you know, you've got history, and you've got present, and you've got the future, and you've got all kinds of metaphors and all kinds of stuff going on. And that's just the start of this chapter. And next we find that Jesus is hungry. And we're going to read the verse at the end, so you see I'm not just making this up. It's not just that I think he's hungry. It says, Jesus was hungry, and he sees in the distance a tree. And that tree is a fig tree. Now, uh, what you might not know about fig trees is that uh, if you were a traveler and you just walking around, it would be commonplace to see a fig tree and to just nick a little bit of fruit off it. And it says in the passage that it wasn't actually the time for there to be proper figs, but there would have been these little nubs, these little nodules on there that you could just nick off and, and eat as you go along, and that's quite commonplace. And so a tree full of leaves, even if it might not have figs, is great if you're hungry. And you look, he sees this tree and sees, oh, sweet, I'm going to go over, I'm going to munch on some of these little bits. But as he gets close to this tree, I'm not making this up, this is genuine in the passage, as he gets close to this tree, he sees that although it's stacked with leaves, there's nothing on it, there's nada, it's just absolutely empty in terms of fruit. And Mark explains this, that Jesus, having seen that tree, hoping to get um, his hunger quenched, then he sees the tree and he realizes it has got nothing, and he judges the tree. Yeah, so you might be thinking, you know, that's a bit mean. Jesus, it's just a tree. What did it do? It's just a tree. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say, pause your thoughts about the tree for a minute, because what Mark does is he says that Jesus walks up to this tree, judges the tree, then goes on to the temple, and then comes back to the tree. So in our minute-by-minute, minute, we've got a, a, a hint that something's going on with this tree But it's actually linked to the temple. So you'll come back in a minute. See that Jesus isn't just being nasty. The tree is just for the sake of it. Um, In the Old Testament, you've then got this kind of metaphor that a fig tree is a bit like Jerusalem, a bit like uh, the Jewish faith, a little bit like Israel. So Jesus is about to go to a Jewish temple. So you see there's going to be some sort of symmetry, some sort of parallel, some kind of linkage that Mark's putting. So just pause your um, fig tree thoughts. So Jesus pushes on. Minute by minute, Jesus pushes on to the temple. He arrives at the temple. All right, I don't know if you know much about the temple in this day. It would have been a quarter of the entire floor plan of the city was this temple. 150 foot tall, so like 15 stories tall. And at the time of a Jewish feast or a festival, the eyes of the world would really have been on Jerusalem at the time and would have been on this place. So, so three times the population of Jerusalem would have been in Jerusalem at the temple at the time of a big feast. So Jesus isn't coming into this temple like subtle. It's not incommunicado. At this point, it's like boom. This is the eyes of the world on what he's about to do. And he turns up and he's looking for real worship, isn't he? So he's on a bit of a search. Or, I'm looking for devout people who are praying. I'm looking for people meeting God. I'm looking for the presence of God in this temple. And he turns up at this temple and what does he find? What well, he finds absolute carnage. And so Jesus... Minute by minute, we're running through what's he doing. He turns up and he finds this business operation. Thousands of people have come there and they're buying uh, animals to sacrifice or they're exchanging currency to use temple currency. Think kind of the, the New York Stock Exchange or the London Stock Exchange, but like on speed, like it's mental. The whole thing is kicking off. Um, one um, historian at the time, Josephus, says that there were, at one single festival... Or feast, there'd be 250,000 lambs bought and killed and sacrificed. Like we're talking like a massive business operation. And Jesus turns up there and he starts throwing the tables around and he starts throwing the money around and he probably starts throwing people around. Jesus has turned up and what he's looking for is real worshippers, devout prayers, the real presence of God. You know, this is a place where people from all around the world are coming and could meet with God. And what he finds is an absolute farce nothing of that. And so he kicks off. And that genuine kind of shock that he experiences then reflected in the shock of everyone around him. It's like, what is happening? What is going on? What is Jesus doing? Jesus is thinking this is meant to be a house of prayer. And he says, as we'll see in the passage, this is meant to be a house of prayer, but you've messed the whole thing up. People could be discovering God, but they're not because of all this absolute carnage that's going on. A little takeaway from this little temple scene, this isn't going to be the focus of our sermon, is that Jesus, when he turns up to your sacred space, when he comes into the the real secret, maybe devout part of your life, he doesn't leave stuff unturned. Jesus doesn't leave any of these guys the option, with the eyes of the world on him, the option to say, oh, he was a really nice teacher, wasn't he? Oh, what a nice guy that we could just gently follow. Oh, I'm, I'm interested in finding out about him. He is throwing stuff and throwing people Jesus doesn't really leave these guys the option. He's not coming in subtle. He's coming in strong. This is the last week building up to his death. And so it's all kicking off, as I say. And then Jesus goes back to the fig, goes back to the fig tree. So Jesus comes back to the fig tree and, spoiler alert, we're going to read the verse a bit later, it's dead. It is dead. So Jesus has judged this tree, cursed this tree, and it is dead, and there is nothing left. And Jesus has ridden into town looking for this devout prayer, looking for some type of devotion to God in the Jewish people, or in the Jewish leaders, or in the Jewish faith, or in Jerusalem, or at the temple, or anywhere. And what he's found instead is no leaders that point to God. He's got no leaders or people that are developing fruit. What he's got is an absolute sham. He's found instead of devout prayers, busy people, you know, people who are doing loads of stuff people who are power-hungry and political. And what Jesus is doing is exposing fruitlessness and empty ritual. And so the parallel that Jesus draws and Mark draws here is to say, Jerusalem, the Jewish people, the Jewish faith, people who are meant to be bearing fruit and pointing to God, you are like a tree that from a distance has the appearance of bearing fruit. But when you get close up, actually, it's a sham. There's nothing there at all. There's no faith. There's no fruit at all. So Jesus is on this mini-mission to expose fruitless, empty ritual. If God's involved in our lives, if God's involved in this church, and God's, if God's involved in your parenting, if God's involved in you and what's in your life, you should be able to see fruit. You should be able to see change, heart change, deep change, real things going on. And Jesus is setting up a challenge that actually spans the years, even to today, The way that Mark writes it, you look at it and think, a lot of what this whole fig tree thing is about is saying, well, what about you? Are you bearing genuine fruit for God? Or is it a little bit like you've become accustomed to from a distance appearing as though you're fruitful? But was someone to follow you around for the week and see what your life's like up close? As I get close to this fig tree, as I get close to whether there's fruit or not in your life, in your family, in your church, in what you're doing, is it a little bit of a sham? Is it hypocrisy? And Jesus is, in this week, not mentioning his words. He's trying to root that out. And then we get to this point where we realize Jesus isn't just being mean to fig trees. He's trying to get up in people's faces. He's trying to even get up in our faces. And then we get to this whole thing of faith. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of the sermon then, talking about, well, what is faith and why does Jesus go into it? Why do we need faith when we pray? But Jesus got an opportunity, hasn't he? He's kind of ripped it all up. He's gone mental on the minute by minute. The guy's keyboard is just like a mess. It's completely melted. Like the whole website's crashed. Like all this stuff has happened. But Jesus got then a minute by the fig tree with his disciples. So he's saying, what you don't want to do, disciples, what you don't want to do when you follow me is have a building where the presence of God is meant to be, but there's no genuine prayer or devotion or seeking God. What you do want to have instead is, is God living in you, working in your life to the point where you are confident and full of faith that he's going to work and do the impossible. And so he takes this little teaching opportunity to to tee up this little sermon that he goes into about you can pray even for the impossible. And through Jesus, in the new covenant, if you forget the old ritual prayers, you forget the old, I'm wearing a robe and a funny hat prayers, if you forget the, I'm facing a certain direction, memorized prayers, If you pray with faith, it's like chalk and cheese. It's like the opposite of the temple. It's like the opposite of fruitlessness. What you'll find is miracles. What you'll find is this amazing access to the power of God that we've already been singing about and talking about this morning. And as I've prepared, as I say, I feel like God wants us just to spend a few minutes looking at faith, looking at faith as we pray, looking at faith that we have as a church, that we have as people. Jesus says, You can change the whole world by believing God and praying boldly. And he says, quote, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. He says, expect some massive results. And that's kind of what I want to give to you this morning, some expectation for massive results. Which is why I've called this whole thing, have faith in God, even for the impossible." So what this, what's this whole thing about, having faith in God? What does that mean? You might, you might be new to church, think I've got no idea what that means. You might have been in a church for years and years and years and still think, I'm not quite sure I can put my finger on how I develop faith or what this whole thing's about. It can be a bit of a mystery. So the way we're going to do it is nice and simple. Three things that faith isn't, and then three things that faith is. When we get to the three things that faith is, I'm going to apply it to our lives. I'm going to say, well, not only is this faith that is possible and hypothetical, but this is faith that can be alive and active in your life. So hopefully, you're going to pick some stuff up. And if you're a mum, this is where you get the bonus content. Like on a DVD, you go into some extra stuff. This is where we're going to apply some of it to you as a mum, as a parent, and I'm hopefully raise your faith about prayer of faith for your kids and for your future. So hopefully you're up for this. We're going to look at what faith is and what faith isn't. A funny thing that I heard uh, this week in looking into, well, what is faith? And what is faith when you pray? What does that mean? <laughs> I saw a magazine quoted saying, Faith is a condemned prisoner eating his last meal, asking for a doggy bag. It's like, okay, interesting. That's a definition of faith, but you know, that's probably not what Jesus is saying here. Three things that faith is not. Firstly, faith is not magic which forces God's arm. Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer will be yours if you believe So it's a great motivation. It's a great encouragement to us. But ultimately, God is the sovereign one, isn't he? God is in charge. So let me tell you, if you got everything delivered to you in exactly the form you asked for every single time you prayed over your entire life, I don't think that would actually be good for you. So God is, Jesus is trying to raise our faith, but it's not magic when you have faith. It's not magic that forces God to deliver I heard of a boy leaving a geography exam praying oh dear god please make paris the capital of turkey <laughs> like it's not quite it doesn't quite work like that just because you've prayed it and you've got faith it doesn't mean that god's actually you know he's going to switch that around god isn't a slot machine so a helpful way to summarize this point is tim keller a leader of a church called redeemer in new york he puts it this way prayer is such a powerful weapon and that's what jesus is saying here in this verse he's trying to raise our faith our confidence that prayer is a powerful weapon But like any really powerful weapon, there's a safety on it. And so if you think about it, we should have absolute confidence that prayer and a prayer full of faith could move mountains, could change the world, could change the impossible. But ultimately, fortunately for us, God knows our hearts and our motives and God sees the whole picture. So I'd like to think of that as the safety just in case. Okay, so prayer is not, sorry, faith isn't magic which forces God's arm. Prayer, is, uh, 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 pr- prayer and faith in prayer isn't positive thinking. Sometimes we think of it that way. If I can just scrunch up my eyes and think hard enough, really positively, God's going to have to do what I'm praying for. Maybe you're praying for someone who's sick and just genuinely really want it to happen, and you think, how do I make this more higher ish faith. Let's just really, uh, let's say some mantras or something. You know, it's easy to fall into that kind of thinking. And to be honest, there are people who would teach that, that the more positive you are in your thoughts, that's, you know, it's a mind game. I want to tell you, that's not what Jesus is saying here. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus himself doesn't demonstrate positive thinking when he's healing people. And he never says that to anybody. Just think better. He never really, definitely never says to someone, "Or well, you weren't thinking positively enough when I prayed for you, so you didn't get healed. Jesus doesn't demonstrate that when he's praying for the sick. You get some churches and some teachers who would say, you've got symptoms and you've not been healed yet, but what I want you to do is just start believing you're healed, and you are. And actually, some of that is putting faith in faith. It's saying if you just have enough faith, you can be confident that you've sorted it. Your own mind games did it. But Jesus never really teaches that. He says, I'm up in your confidence that, Prayer can change the world. But really what I'm saying is, I can change the world. Your positive thinking isn't the be-all and end-all. So people can think, you know what, this hype around faith means I'm thinking so positively now, I have to be healed. Um, again, just to try and summarize this in a way a bit more like a story, think of David and Goliath, yeah? So, so David walks up to Goliath, and you'd say that's a pretty big step of faith, wouldn't you? He's got some stones, that guy is huge. But faith is less that David was thinking positively, and more that David had seen a track record over his life of God being stronger than anything else. God delivering time and time again. So actually, it probably doesn't seem as big a risk to David when he's in front of Goliath as it seems to other people looking on. He's just got, well, God's stronger than anything else in my life so far, This is more of an equation where God's bigger than anything, not my mind is sorting the whole thing out. Does that help? So faith is more about seeing God's track record and believing it than just summing up some really uh, positive thinking. David's confident of God's passion, God's willingness, God's power, God's ability, not his own mental maths. And it's not a percentage game. That's the last thing. So faith isn't You know, you've got 20% faith when you pray, and you've got like 80%, and you've got 100%, and we're trying to move up and down on those rungs. That's not really what faith is about. In fact, sometimes when you hear people talk about the size of your faith at being the crucial factor, so for example, in praying for the sick, you know, I want to get higher levels of faith. Jesus specifically challenges that dodgy theology with his disciples. He doesn't let that pass. He's not cool with that. He actually starts to say stuff like, Even if you have a tiny amount of the right kind of faith, it's enough to see ridiculously good miracles. And so really, faith, if you remember anything from this one, is more about substance than volume. So faith, as we pray, is about substance, not volume. Our faith should be not only that God is able to heal or break in. What we talk about here, we talk about when you pray for your finances, Talk about when you're praying for relationships. Talk about when you're praying for you, as a mum, as a parent. Talking about praying for life change. Talking about praying for your friends. Talking about praying for the sick. It's less about volume and more about substance where we say, okay, our faith is that God is not only able to do all these things and break through, but he's also willing to. It's the character of God. It's who he is that we're clinging on to. And so Jesus says even the tiniest amount of faith in God... Is overwhelmingly powerful. And so that's what I'm trying to say in this whole thing on faith, is that have faith in God, even for the impossible, and you've got the right substance of your faith. If we get God and his promises, and we, we can all do that, we've all got God's promises, then actually what we'll find is he's a generous, powerful, willing God as we come and boldly ask him in prayer. Okay, so three things that faith is, and this is where I want to start to apply it to our lives. So if you've fallen asleep and you're not sure exactly what's going on, this bit's how it gets into your life. So maybe pay attention here. Three things that faith is. So firstly, faith is expecting God to be faithful to his promises. So faith is expecting God to be faithful to his promises. Jesus says in this verse, Say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. He's literally pulling on a, a kind of a literary Jewish way of saying, the most impossible thing you can think of is possible with God. So many places in the Bible, God kind of says, yeah, ask me. Go on, go on, I dare you, ask me. He says, if you ask for it, it will be done. If you seek, you'll find it dare to ask me. Come on, try and expect me to be faithful to my promises. There's a lot of the emphasis of prayer in the New Testament. So believing that he is faithful should give us boldness and make us ask more and be more courageous. Now, we don't see everybody that we pray for to be healed healed, do we? And it's not like every single answer to prayer comes immediately. But Jesus' emphasis, and I would like, as a church, our emphasis, and even as we talk to each other about things like healing to be, we're going to focus on what God has said he will do. We're going to focus on the promises that he has made. It's possible to, as you're praying for somebody or as you're thinking about prayer, thinking about faith, think, I wonder if God wants to. I wonder if God wants to intervene here. Uh, God's character is a mystery, There's some things that aren't revealed to me about how God works. What I'd love us to be as a church is a church that says, you know what, there's a heck of a lot of stuff that is revealed to me in the Bible that I can say is in the will of God. And that's what I'm going to lean into. I can't solve the mysteries of the character of God this side of heaven anyway. I won't really worry about it. So you come over to the prayer area and someone's praying for you. What's helpful faith? What's substantive, bold faith? It's saying you know what I'm going to lean into here is what God has told me he's going to do, what God has told me he is, who he really is. And so it's expecting God to be faithful to his promises. In James, it says, is any one of you sick? The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Oh, does God want to intervene? What does God want to do here? It's a mystery. I tell you, just, all right, is any one of you sick? Luke, Book of Luke, do not be afraid for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Matthew, God delights to give good things to those who ask him. All right, here we go. Mum's bonus feature. If you're a mum, what we've got here is a promise that God delights to give good things to those who ask him. Do you want good things for yourself and for your kids? Here's an application for you. Why don't you go away and think of some good things? You might be, you know, straight out of the Bible, some promises, some verses. It might just be good things. And why don't you just begin to think, right, God delights to give good things. So I'm going to start to pray for these things. Based on the character of God, I'm going to start to pray for these things. You've got a husband, you give him the list. You say, these are some things that I'm praying for. I want you to back this as well, a prayer of faith saying, God, you delight to give good things. And here are some good things that we want for our kids and for our family, for our home. Send them out to your mates. These are some good things I'm praying for. I think that's in line with the New Testament teaching of the character of God. We should hold him to it. Philippians 4 talks about how God supplies every need according to his riches. Mums, you've got some needs. I've thought of a few. Energy, resilience, sleep. Patience, money, equipment, clothes. God is rich. God is able to supply your needs out of his riches. So why don't you begin to ask God to supply your every need according to his riches? And as and when, because I believe he will, God begins to supply things for you, material or spiritual, whatever they are, emotional, physical. Why don't you begin to tell other people about how good God is, how rich he is, and how he can actually deliver Everybody here, not just mums. There's a prayer area over there. you got some needs. you got some things you want God to supply. Why don't you get over there? Begin to say, right, I'm going to take God at his word, that he's going to supply my every need. Come on, I want to grab you and you're going to pray with me. We're going to call on God. Boldly say, God, this is who you are. I think that's something about what faith is. All right, and then two shorter ones then. So prayer and faith is based on our expectations, basing our expectations on his story not on our story. Jesus never rebuked anybody who came to him and he said, you know what? You're asking too much. You're presuming too much. He never said that. If we look at the life and the story of Jesus, actually his miracles and the amount and the volume and the incredible nature of the miracles he performs should stir us and stimulate us if we base our expectations on his story, not on our story so far. Jesus is willing. Nobody, when Jesus came to them, was sent away saying, no, this isn't God's will for you to be healed, or this isn't the right time. Nobody. And it's the same with the apostles. People came, and they were healed. Sometimes we read, every person that came to Jesus was healed of every infirmity. What we can say is Jesus was willing and ready to heal and to break in then, and is now. And if we base our expectations on his story and not on our lives so far, I think we're doing the right thing. Does that make some sense? Okay. So, mums... I guess this applies to everyone, but I'm just picking out mums again. I want to tell you, as a church, we want to pray if you're sick or if your kids are sick. Because I think that's the trajectory of history is going That Jesus healed loads. The apostles healed loads. Redeemer, we pray and see people healed loads. So if you're unwell, what I'd love you to do is grab a card or find somebody. If your kid's unwell, you know what? Jesus wasn't really cool with people being unwell. He didn't think that was okay. He said, you know what, we're going to do something about this. And I'd love us to be a church like that as well. So if you are feeling unwell, there's something going wrong, come and find me or somebody else or fill in the card. We'd love to pray. This is the trajectory of our church is to say that more and more every year we should be seeing more of the breakthrough of God. And finally, prayer and faith in prayer is active and is not easily deterred. Jesus, uh, sorry. In James, we read, you don't have because you don't ask. And that should be a challenge to us. We should be active in asking. God asks us to pray and to be obedient. John Wimber was a guy who saw loads of people healed. And he says, I'd rather pray for 100 people and see one person healed than pray for nobody and see nobody healed. Come on. We should be active, even if we've only got a mustard seed of prayer of faith, we should be active in prayer. Let's pray for a hundred. We can stand and say we don't like sickness. We believe God. We want to pray more boldly and more often. I think that would be a good application. There's a guy called James Matheson. I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of him. You probably wouldn't have. He was somebody who lived in 1805 to 1875 in the Highlands, in this little village, during the Crimean War. Loads of soldiers from his village went to fight. What you find with James is he was a prayer, and so he would go passionately filled with a passion to pray, and he'd kneel by a riverbank near his house. And what he'd pray for every night, sometimes all night, was the safety of the soldiers from his village. I'm going to read you a bit of his story. James prayed relentlessly in Scotland, and far away in the Crimea there were occasional reports of a man appearing and moving about the trenches at night. These apparitions were, no doubt, dismissed by all the most, all but the most superstitious as a mere figment of their terrified and exhausted minds. But then, at the end of the war, the 93rd Highlanders from that village returned to Scotland and, attempted, and attended a special communion service in the village. When James Matheson entered, those war-worn soldiers turned and gasped. Here before them stood the man they had seen in those distant trenches, night after night, a figure bringing strange comfort amidst the horrors of war. Somehow James Matheson, interceding so earnestly in Scotland, had appeared amongst the very people for whom he'd been battling so fiercely. I want to raise our faith that when we pray, God can do the impossible. This is one guy, and here's one other thing for you mums. It is said that for years after that time that James prayed during the Crimean War, you could still see the knee imprints on the ground that he went to every night. If you're a mum, I'd love the legacy of your prayer to be that in the unseen, you pray in a way that brings reality for your children. Whatever you're praying for, wouldn't it be great to have an aspiration to be the kind of person where there's knee marks in the ground that has a real genuine impact in your kids' lives and your kids' futures? I'm praying that be the case for you. Okay, so all of us can apply this message This is literally, I just want to run through, maybe if you've not picked up, four ways that you can apply this message to your life. The first of them is this. You can pray more. And it's good for us to pray more. It's good for us to habitually enter God's throne room expectantly. Secondly, it's good for us to read more of Jesus' life and the promises in the Bible. The more you know of God, the more you can trust him. Faith, Paul says, comes from hearing. The third is to say, well, you can tell others as and when God delivers on your prayers of faith, you can come and grab a microphone and tell us as a church to stir our faith. And finally, you can walk out on the water a bit like Peter did. Sometimes you actually need to step out to put your faith into action. So even if you're not a mum, there are four things you can apply into your life. Okay, I want to just finish by reading the verse. Okay, and they brought the cult to Jesus. And threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he was teaching them and saying, is it not written my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And they passed by in the morning and saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, it will be yours. God's good. Let's go, let's pray, let's put faith into action. Amen.